Welcome to Mainly History, your go-to podcast for conversations about mostly Maine and mainly history. I'm your host, Ian Saxine. Today's guest will take us on a ride with John Adams across the rough roads of colonial Maine in the 1760s as he traveled the circuit at the start of his career as a young lawyer. How did the colonial legal system operate in Maine? What was it like to be present when court was in session in York? Were there any personal injury lawyers plying their trade? I haven't passed the bar, but I am out here doing my best to raise it. So let's do this. My guest today is Sarah Giorgini, editor of the Adams Papers at the Massachusetts Historical Society. Sarah is also the author of Household Gods, The Religious Lives of the Adams Family, published by Oxford University Press in 2018. Her writing has also appeared in Smithsonian Magazine and on CNN. Sarah, welcome to Mainly History. Thanks, Ian, and hello, wonderful listeners. John Adams is remembered for his political career, but he started off as a lawyer in Massachusetts, uh, a path that, for reasons we'll get into, took him to the part of Massachusetts that was, until 1760, just York County. Adams and his family are an exceptionally well-chronicled bunch of people, as you know better than almost anybody. (laughs) What kinds of sources did John Adams and his relatives leave behind for historians, and particularly for you? I'm delighted to tell you about the Adams paper, which is a trove of a quarter of a million manuscript pages covering about 10 generations worth of American experience and held here at the Massachusetts Historical Society. And you'll find a little bit of everything. You'll find private and public letters, treaties, diaries, illustrations, photographs, you name it. But the heart of the collection really is in that formative period between the revolution and the building of the early republic. And what we try to do here in the Adams Papers editorial project is make the archive more accessible by publishing volumes of the public and private letters of John and Abigail Adams and their descendants. It really gives us a window into vast early America in all its color, nuance, and glory. And I think that's especially true of the unique legal landscape that John Adams quite literally traveled through over several years and several colonies worth of experience. When it comes to legal material that we hold in the Adams Papers, some of it is here and some of it isn't in that quarter of a million manuscript pages. What you'd really have to do to find what John Adams' life was like manuscript-wise as a lawyer is kind of turn him upside down and shake his pockets out. And if you did, what would spill out would be what we have. These kind of little bound sewn volumes that hold court dockets, his commonplace book entries, his pleading forms, his records, his receipts for payment. It's a very portable set of documents that's well frayed from being carried around with him as he traveled. 
And if we want to look beyond this archive, we're incredibly grateful to the records um, at the Suffolk County Court here in Boston, where you can kind of sift through about 175,000 cases that were active before 1800. And we use that to kind of supplement what we have here with the Suffolk County's folio records, these big, large kind of albums of bound records. They're what we call waste books or minute books where you take a minute to stop and write up a case. And we do that for criminal or civil entries. And finally, they're file papers. So what material actually went before the court? So as you can hear, there's a lot going on in terms of what we have for a paper trail to understand what it was like to be an 18th century lawyer like John Adams before American independence. That is a lot. It's so great that since you guys are located in Boston, the Massachusetts State Archives are just mm -hmm. down the road and mm -hmm. the Massachusetts Superior Court records are there as well. And so mm -hmm. I have whiled away many an afternoon looking through those for my own research. And you're absolutely right where, especially when you look in these case files, you can really find anything. So you get like scraps of paper from the jury saying things occasionally and, you know, all sorts of random affidavits and testimonies and uh, just, just a, a whole bunch. It's, it's great. Just that's extra good for MHS because uh, people can look at one side of the sort of privately held collections that you all have, and then look at the state holdings as well on the same trip. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true how our collections speak to and are in conversation with still <laughs> all yeah. those other archives because we're really able to build a picture of what mattered to early Americans. Yeah. When did they seek justice? How did they do it? What did that process look like on the ground? Was it different between the colonies? These are all things that we can kind of stitch together from the manuscripts that we have, even though you are very much working with the jigsaw puzzles worth of sources. Right. Adams at one point said that uh, becoming a lawyer would allow him noble and gallant achievements. Could you maybe tell us just a bit about uh, his early upbringing and what would give him that idea? Or maybe was the law truly considered a noble pursuit throughout the province of Massachusetts Bay in his, in his boyhood? So when John Adams is growing up in Braintree, now Quincy, about a half a day's ride from Boston, as a teenager, the last thing on his mind is becoming a lawyer. The first thing he wants to do is be a farmer like his father. It's noble, you always have a job, no matter how difficult it is, and it keeps him in touch with the local community. As he came of age and proceeded to study at Harvard College, he had three big paths, the same three paths that every young New England boy had kind of open up to him as career paths. And those were medicine, ministry, and law. And law, he kind of backburner didn't care about. Medicine, he thought was a bit of a grind. He thought it was endless toil. And so he determined to become a capital C congregationalist minister. And he studied to do it. He planned to do it. And then a local controversy where a minister his own age came under fire with the Braintree community and died as a result of his exertions in protesting it changed John Adams' mind. And he thought, you know, if I become a minister, I'll always be treated poorly. I'll be thwarted in all of my intellectual pursuits and no one will really appreciate me. So instead, far better and friendlier for me to become a lawyer. Now, we 
we might kind of think about that and laugh a little bit, but we have to think as the 18th century did about the purpose of the law, because this is how John Adams thought about it. Law was very much a way to repair social ills. You were administering a spiritual corrective to the wrongs of society. And this he really took up with great vigor. He had a very brief stint after Harvard where he taught at a boys' school in Worcester, and he pretty much hated it. This really confirmed that what he wanted to do in life was be a lawyer. And so he set out on a training process to become a lawyer that was actually pretty standard in New England at the time. We don't have a Harvard Law School yet. We have very few law books available for him to read. Starts to collect them. He starts to make friends. He starts to network. And he takes up a two-year apprenticeship with James Putnam, who's a very well-known and highly regarded local lawyer. Essentially, at this time, to become a lawyer, it was kind of like, and for all kind of graduate students and continuing scholars out there, it's kind of like reading for comps. You have a two-year period where you're doing really intense reading, mostly in English common law and precedence, and you're reading the big classics, and then you are admitted to the local bar. And this is what happens for John Adams in 1758. He's sworn in to Suffolk's inferior court and he kind of kicks off his law career with a number of friends that he's made. And the way he proceeds in building his career is actually really interesting. He knows that he can maximize his training by booking a lot of cases like a lot, like 30 odd cases a year in the inferior court dealing with common pleas. And then he has five or six where he is of counsel to the superior court, where, you know, he's in the big courtroom getting a lot of the attention dealing with more serious cases. So he manages to advance his career throughout the 1750s and 1760s as a young lawyer working on these two levels simultaneously. To me, this says he is really adroit at understanding the Massachusetts court system such as it exists and how to amplify his own arguments before it, his own notoriety. He sets up shop in Braintree because he learns that there's really no other lawyer in all of Suffolk County practicing outside Boston. This is super smart. This is a great way to set up a new business. Because first of all, a lot of clients find him that way. And second of all, when they don't find him, he has time freed up to go and attend court and listen to arguments and watch personalities unfold and to see how decisions are rendered. So he keeps on learning. He keeps on training. One of his very early mentors, Jeremiah Gridley, tells him that what he should do is pursue the study of the law rather than the gain of it. So don't go for the number of cases, don't go for the big ticket cases, but absolutely focus on what you can study about the law with every case you take. And this becomes the guiding principle, really, of John Adams' life as a lawyer. So you say John Adams is the only lawyer in Braintree, Does this mean that he would take sort of any type of case? Are there there more specialized types of law in 18th century Massachusetts? You know, are we talking other defense attorneys? Are there uh, other people specializing in maritime law? Are there, dare I say, personal injury lawyers in, uh, in the 1750s? 
So this is a really good question because it helps us think about what mattered enough to bring it to court for colonists, right? At this moment where we're thinking about, are you a colonist? Are you a citizen? What liberties are yours? What can you sue for? This is the moment to think about what kind of corrective the law can be. The short answer is no, we don't yet have specialized lawyers like that. Do they sometimes drift to one kind of case more than the other? Perhaps, but at this time, the major cases are criminal and civil cases. There's no such thing really as personal injury law at this time. Tort cases are very few. The most common kinds of court cases that John Adams and his peers would have seen are about simple contracts. So issues with commercial relations. The second kind that you'd see would probably be land cases. And some of these things can be real minor. So what you see in the, the very simple court of common pleas request, you see things like debts, you see trespasses, anything that's kind of 40 shillings or less is going to be handled at the justice of the peace level before it, it rises to the next step for appeal. In terms of criminal cases, you will see the standard set of criminal cases you see today. So those would be very familiar to people. But you also have to remember that the courts are moving through some of these cases at a pretty rapid clip. It's a pretty peremptory affair when someone brings something forward, even if it gets to a jury at the level right before the superior court. I mean, they're looking at maybe deciding on six cases a day. It's pretty quick. So we have to think about the kinds of cases. We have to think about the process that's involved, the paper trail that comes out of it, and then who's involved. I mean, the people, I think, who make up this court system are so interesting. They often are holding multiple offices. So you have so many layers of relationships that are parsed out at every level of the justice system. Learning how to navigate something like that and knowing what kind of civil or criminal matter you are dealing with, those are some extra layers, I think, of challenge for someone, especially like John Adams, who is just starting out and learning how to channel his clients through the system. That's very much a challenge for him. And that stays for the rest of his career. That's always something he's thinking about. Speaking of that system, John Adams ends up traveling a good deal as an attorney, and for this was not uncommon in the 18th centuries in Massachusetts or elsewhere. Why would a lawyer like John Adams, and for that matter, so many lawyers and judges, be traveling so much? So if we think about the kind of pyramid of justice that's created for someone traveling the system, if you first have a problem and you bring it to your justice of the peace, it is going to route in one of two ways on appeal to the court of the general sessions of the peace, which meets quarterly and it decides everything at a county level, or it could go to the inferior court of common pleas, which also meets quarterly. And it has four judges that are appointed by the royal governor and the governor's council. And then if we kick it up one more notch, if it goes on appeal one more time, it's going to go to the superior court of judicature. And that, is a traveling court to a degree. So John Adams is traveling around to county courts, but he's also traveling to that superior court. That's five justices, right? You need three for a quorum, again, appointed by the royal governor and council. And 
they move around a little bit. They extend from Massachusetts to what's called the Eastern Counties of Massachusetts in York and Cumberland, what's now Maine. And this calls for John Adams to go there as well. And I want to just stop and think about something that I always think about what's happening between letters, right? All the life that people live between letters, between manuscripts, what's happening. And we might think about the fact that all of these judges and these lawyers are traveling together often, right? So they are on horseback having conversations. It's a long ride from Boston up to Falmouth, now Portland. They're talking about evidence. They're talking about arguments. They're staying often in the same tavern lodgings. So there's an element of socializing that's happening betwixt and between all of the legal process. And that's something to consider because John Adams travels through Maine, which are somewhat colorful only because he doesn't like the weather very much. (laughs) (laughs) He's troubled a bit by the road conditions and the bad winter weather, I think, often. Or if he's traveling in the summer, it's just very hot. I mean, that's a two to three week journey Mm. in June, which is not what he's happy doing, to tell you the truth. So there's some physical rigor involved. There's some opportunities intellectually involved to trade information and evidence. And it is certainly something that persists for some time. I mean, we have really wonderful examples of other early American lawyers riding the circuit, as it's called, and keeping a diary of it. And one of my favorites is in the John Jay papers, someone else who's often on the road. But I think this idea that justice is portable, that it will come to you, whether you are in Massachusetts or Maine, is an important one for the colonists to understand. The fact that the court will come to them, that you have an opportunity to be heard, that matters a great deal. And it's essentially that love of jurisprudence. That's what gets John Adams on his horse for two to three weeks to go through the back roads of Maine. The idea that he is putting forward some form of early American jurisprudence. I'm just kind of fascinated by some of his discussion of the cases that pops up, not in his letters per se, because he's very good about confidentiality. Ah. Reflections in his diary or his minutes or his notes about some of the cases that he sees. He has a very distinct lawyerly literary style that emerges, which I find Mm. fascinating. Thinking of John Adams unhappily sort of traveling along the, <laughs> you know, the the major road through Maine at the time along the coast was not very good. But I've seen other evidence, not that it would comfort him that much, of these other lawyers traveling by boat. So there was this poor guy who the Massachusetts General Court hired to go collect testimony in this very famous murder case that mm. happened in Wiscasset in 1750, where uh, several Wabanaki leaders were, were murdered by a group of sailors. And so this lawyer was sent out to collect witness testimony. And he, I found his bill that he filed to the, the court in the Massachusetts archives. And he talks mm-hmm. about how I had to travel for the entire month of February in an open boat between uh. islands in the dead of winter. And I, I caught cold. And I was, I was greatly distressed. And so I feel that my time should be paid more for all the <laughs> trouble of traveling in this country. And the court thought that he was overbilling them and they denied him. 
but that is uh, such a great find. <laughs> he, yeah, we think about these people, you know, and we get their their letters, and uh, and sometimes they'll say things like apologies for the poor handwriting, the ink mm-hmm. froze, you know, that sort of stuff. But yeah, so even the boats, you couldn't really win. So you can really win, and I think you you bring up something really interesting. I just add here that becomes a flashpoint of controversy later on, which is attorney's fees, right? So John Adams doesn't make a ton of money this way. Essentially, if you rifle through his receipts, you'll find a lot of them are for 12 shillings because that's what you get paid to argue in superior court. It is six shillings. It is half that if you're in inferior court. So you can see how you can structure your fees. A lot of them are limited by statute. So there's no way to really negotiate in this period. Things will change after the revolution and this will become a source of controversy, especially in Massachusetts, how to reform the legal profession, whether it's warranted and if attorneys are charging too much. And John Adams actually goes back and forth in his letters, at least, and in his coverage of one very important main client that he has, and that's the Kennebec Company, right? So the Kennebec Company is so important for understanding land speculation and acquisition in early America. They kind of have John Adams on retainer. He argues so many cases on their behalf. When he does finally depart the bar, and leave for his diplomatic appointment to France, because he kind of wraps up his legal career by December of 1777, the Kennebec Company sends him off with a $100 thank you. So after they retainer for about 30 pounds a year, more or less, which is no small thing, they kind of send him off with a great gift. So Maine is the source of of clientele, (laughs) clientele, I think, for for Adams as well. You mentioned... John Adams respected confidentiality, but he also worked for the Kennebec proprietors who were extremely crooked and shady people. So Mm -hmm. I have to ask, did he leave in maybe his private correspondence any evidence of what he thought of these people? So we don't see that often in his correspondence, but he does keep ties with the families involved in that company. So you want to come on back to the Adams papers later on because the Hallwells, the Gardeners, all the families who are involved to a degree show up in his public and private correspondence for the rest of his life. And sometimes you'll get kind of a glancing mention, but he's very good about not talking about his clients. I think he is someone who is more of a kitchen table confidant for Abigail (laughs) than actually laying out his opinions like that. He's, he's pretty careful about that overall. And you'd think you'd have something maybe in the minutes. He's very cautious. And there's a couple reasons for that. One, you never know who's going to read your notes. Oh yeah. They would have sued him right. Good. There's another component here. That's interesting, which is, John Adams' three sons all become lawyers, right? Mm. So Charles in New York, Thomas Boylston in Philadelphia, John Quincy in Boston. The Adamses as a family like to write for the archive. All of these boys start out at some point, and his daughter Nabby, as secretaries. So they are helping to conserve and organize the papers. The understanding is also that part of their informal law apprenticeship is to read their father's papers. And that definitely includes his legal papers. 
So you want to leave behind a good working model of what a conscientious upright lawyer is, right? What does an honest lawyer look like as a model? Oh. Aware of that as he's setting stuff up. So based on what we have, I think that he is relatively cautious about divulging his personal opinion. There's a, a third reason at play there, which is sometimes he doesn't know. He's not quite sure, and he'll write this, he doesn't know on which side justice lay. Even with his own clients, he's not wholly sure if they're in the right or in the wrong sometimes. And this eats him up in true John Adams style. But it is also a good indicator of how lawyers and clients interacted in this period, right? And still do. There's a gray area that he is not always certain of. And I think that's really interesting. Yeah, I guess I... I, I, I'm surprised by that a bit just because we know that John Adams was so judgmental and so mm-hmm. free with his judgment and other areas of, the, of his life later on. But of course, that was politics. And, you know, he didn't have attorney-client privilege and, you know, all mm-hmm. the rest, the confidentiality. So this is a really good point. As an aside, have you been to the Pownellboro Courthouse? In... I have not. Have you been? Oh, yes. Highly recommend. Tell it me is... all about it. <laughs> so the, the Kennebec proprietors who mm-hmm. uh, the main historical society is digitizing their papers and it's going to be free and available to the public in the in the near future. So stay tuned, everybody. Uh, but the Kennebec proprietors, they paid for this courthouse and it was part of a deal they struck where they wanted a new county, Lincoln County, to be created in the hopes that mm-hmm. they could better influence the juries. That was part of the deal that they, they had struck. And so that is ultimately what happened. With the, the, the Shire town of Pownellboro was where the, the courthouse was built. And if you go, it's still standing today, but it's a really slapdash job where they cut corners everywhere and the building is kind of on a slant and it's uneven. Mm-hmm. because this was the kind of company that the Kennebec proprietors were. It's a great example of, of late colonial architecture. And it's a, it's a wonderful place to go. It's well kept uh, to see just the sort of physicality of what a, a courthouse in a, a fairly rural frontier county would have looked like in the 1760s. That's so fascinating. And it would certainly have impressed John Adams. So could we talk a bit about the physicality of what would a would the experience be like for a lawyer like John Adams when he's traveling and riding the circuit and he's there in, say, York or, or Falmouth on court day? So we've got the five judges if they have a quorum. What's going on? What role does the jury have? How many people are, are milling around? How orderly or disorderly was this? What would it, what would it have been like for him? So he's staying in a tavern or a boarding house, probably with other judges and lawyers. So that's his first feeling. He's generally pretty tired. There's a lot of complaints of just overall fatigue, poor food, bad living conditions that he has to quit temporarily. He's there for a couple of days. And you have basically two 12-man juries who have usually been selected. And the way that you have a jury selected is that there is... The superior clerk will send a note out to the town. The town will have to nominate people to serve. They will have to show up. They comprise the two 12-man juries. The two 12-man juries are doing, as I said, maybe six jury trials a day. So they're clearing through them pretty quickly. This still means that dockets clog. 
it, it doesn't mean that things move all together quickly. Justice is still not swift, even though this system is in place. It's fairly rudimentary. And remember, we are dealing with all kinds of external forces. So road conditions, illness, travel delays, all kinds of things can slow down progress of the courts. Mm. So he's there to do his job. He's going to defend or prosecute as need be. Um, and it basically proceeds as you think it would. There's a flurry of paperwork that happens between the initial writ that kicks off the case and all kinds of filings and guarantees. Sometimes you'll have depositions. Sometimes you'll have what we might think of as kind of expert referees who come in to report certain matters, but it proceeds. And then there's a lot of kind of wrap up in terms of who's owed what <laughs> and uh. what needs to be filed where, and then you're wrote again. And that's why, I mean, you have these very fragmentary manuscript sources because different towns and different circuit court moments have different paper outcomes, right? It's never the same person really every time handling this. There's no formal overarching protocol. And there, there are times when the judges are really complicated people who, because they don't issue usually written rulings or decisions for us to look at, you kind of have to see where they pop up to see how judicial opinion is forming throughout the colonies. And there's been a lot of work on this. I, I direct folks to, or you may want to, in terms of the development of early American judicial opinion. Certainly the lawyers are part of it. John Adams is part of it, but the judges are interesting people to follow too. Yeah. My understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that we have even less on how the juries operated and what their reasoning was because they, yeah. obviously they left even less. And so in my own work on some of these land disputes in Maine, I'd follow these cases ping-ponging their way through the up the court system. And the big ones, of course, would always get all the way up to the superior court. But finding why the juries decided what they did was almost always impossible. And it was my understanding that sometimes the judges would get really involved and they would mm -hmm. just come out and say, hey, jury, just so you know, this side, their legal arguments are correct and the other sides are not. In so many words, judges were not the same level of kind of referee that mm -hmm. they're supposed to be in the American legal system today. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I think that we think of them as very neutral and noble, but that was not always the case at that time. You have judges who have bundled together so many roles that their political interests are sure to rise to the surface in the courtroom. Just as a, a fun example, I always offer up Thomas Hutchinson, right? A familiar figure in early American history. At one point, he is simultaneously the chief justice of the Superior Court, the lieutenant governor, a counselor, a judge of probate for Suffolk County. Now there's a lot of different interests wrapped up there and they affect a lot of people at different stages of their lives, which is interesting to me. I always wonder what the relationship is between the judges and the jury in a social sense. And I think there's been some work done looking at church records to see where those connections can be drawn. I think particularly of the jury in the Boston massacre trials where several of them are from King's Chapel. So they oh. each other from church, their pews are all relatively together. Their families have somewhat intermarried, 
there are longstanding kinship networks that show up in juries. And I always wonder how often they recur. You know, could you always be the person who gets nominated from your town to be on a jury? You're kind of like a professional jurist to a degree. You know, these are really interesting kind of questions. I think that's a, a wonderful project for someone. And as you say, with scholars very helpfully digitizing material, we need yeah. no more. I think the records of who serves on juries often mm-hmm. are not kept in the same places as many of the other evidence. If you're trying to figure out what happened in a case, you sometimes, especially, you know, heaven help you in colonial Massachusetts that takes place in Maine, you might have to look at records that are in Augusta today, some that are in Boston, mm-hmm. um, you know, and you have, to, you have to kind of follow this. Then, of course, depending on where the initial county was that held these trials, mm-hmm. you need to figure out, I guess, in the maybe town books didn't record who was serving on a jury every time the court came for the most part. Mm-hmm. And so finding those records. Uh, but yeah, figuring out those connections would be a project unto itself that I think would be fascinating. And I I'm not a legal historian, but I I dabbled and I I definitely didn't find very much written work on colonial juries. One of the only pieces of evidence about juries that I ever found was in the Massachusetts Historical Society collections, though. There's Mm -hmm. some papers by, I believe, Edward Hutchinson, the relative Mm -hmm. of Thomas, Mm -hmm. and he owns some land on on, on the coast of Maine near Arousic, and his agent wrote to him in 1764 and said that the people here have told me that these absentee proprietors have bought this land for a few pumpkins, um, <laughs> have no claim to it, and they who have fought to make the land valuable will live here. And he says, and they threw a dollar in my face and said, this won't be able to buy you a jury And in our county. You won't find a jury anywhere that'll find in your favor. Wow. And there were a few of these speculators who complained and they said, the county juries, meaning York County, when all of Maine was York County, that the jury pool was poisoned. And I found one case where somebody complained having lost a suit, where there's an affidavit from a juror who said, well, we found against this case because we knew down the docket, some local land speculator who we don't like was having a similar case and we didn't want to create a precedent. And so we found a certain way in this other supposedly unrelated case in Falmouth to protect our precedent in Scarborough. And this was mm-hmm. all, you know, the same one, but mm-hmm. like, that's pretty much in, you know, months of searching. That was the extent of what mm-hmm. I found about juries and people saying about them. Yeah. It's a wonderful project. So go forth listeners. And that's right. Now, <laughs> so it's helpful to think. So when Adams was making his arguments, was he speaking to jurors then, or the judges primarily, when there was a jury trial? That is an excellent question. I would say a little bit of both, (laughs) which I realize is (laughs) an interesting way forward, because here's how. Thinking about the way that John Adams constructed his arguments is a useful path into seeing how 18th century lawyers argued in general, I think, especially in early America. So for the judges, he sprinkles through enough allusions to major reference works. He'll cite Blackstone, Coke, anything he can find. And he's speaking to them when he drops in those references. When he uses evidence and simpler vocabulary to form his argument, 
to really drill down and refine it and project it, there he's speaking to the jury. And he's very adroit at doing this at two levels, I think, over the course of his career. He knows how to address people with some legal education and others without. And this is incredibly important, right, for his clients. But what I also find kind of fascinating, I mentioned that he likes to keep notes um, of testimony. He's very good at rendering dialogue. So he notes down the words and the phrasing that people use to describe the conditions they're living through, and then he uses that. So you find some wonderfully weird 18th century vocabulary, but you also see a lawyer who is flexible enough to not wholly change his argument, but to edit it in real time in the courtroom as he's taking in more testimony. And he, I think that's a very, I think that's a very advanced skill that the judges would have appreciated in particular. So the other thing that he does is in terms of addressing the jury, he will drown you in evidence. And this is a habit John Adam has over the course of his life, whenever he's making an argument, if he's making an argument about the balance of powers in the constitution, if he's making an argument about electioneering, if he's making an argument because someone's cattle trespassed into someone else's yard and that's the case he's dealing with, he is very good at making a simple argument. And then every time he finds more evidence, he will come back and remind you of it. He will just stack up evidence over and over and over again. So I think the way of amassing information and facts, which we know are stubborn things, mm -hmm. really impacts the jury because they, if they don't have the legal nuance of understanding when a black stone is cited, they understand a mass of information. They understand a quantity of evidence. And he's very good at doing that. Was he also compiling anecdotes for his and research for his Humphrey plow jogger alter ego that he You know, I think he was. I think he was. And I do encourage folks to go to the Adams Papers digital editions and type in one of my favorite pseudonyms that John Adams used, which is Humphrey plow jogger, which is written in kind of an approximation of New England dialect. <laughs> I always wondered how well that was received. Like if it's, cause it seems like him being a little much like, well, I'm not one of those big city lawyers, but you know, and like him trying to be folksy and John Adams was a man of certain talents, but glad handing folksiness did not appear <laughs> to be one of them. So I always wondered about that. If people found it patronizing. Possibly, yes. And he does often allude to himself as a thwarted gentleman farmer. So he does play with class structure quite a bit. And he mm. does have a fondness for professing he is the salt of the earth, frugal, hardy New Englander, when in fact he is a globetrotting diplomat who what? inaugurates the office of vice president. So th there's a bit of disjuncture between it. I think some of it is what we call today optics in the political sense. Right. Thinking about the, the democratization of, of the law and, and Adams's mm -hmm. reflections on this, did he have any strong opinions about how English common law at this, there was an excessive emphasis on form and style. And if you didn't use the right writ, then mm -hmm. nothing worked. 
And some people found this to be, you know, extremely Byzantine and inaccessible. And other people thought it was, I guess, the, the way things should be done. So did, did John Adams, did he have major criticisms of this system? Your example is a good one because, in fact, he screws up the writ on his very first case and he blows it. <laughs> so he, ah. it's the first time out that you have to do the paperwork correctly. You have to play the game, even if you don't wholly like the rules of the system. He does think about how to reform the profession. And in fact, one of his first ventures is to go after people who he calls pettifoggers, who give bad legal advice and soak up money from people who are already struggling. So he's very aware of the problems within the profession. And then to a greater degree, your question of what are the limits of English law for use in America, well, that's going to just springboard right into the American Revolution, isn't it, right? Right. <laughs> that is, is kind of the big ticket answer to your question, which is the American colonies have largely grown out of the jurisprudence that they have in such piecemeal manner and now need to innovate and create a judicial system that works for them. And that is a great part of the revolution. There's a reason so many lawyers are at the head of it. That's a good point. One aspect of the writs that I, I thought was worth mentioning, especially since for listeners who haven't seen these, these sources would be surprised and confused is that the, a, a lot of the way the writs work is that if you're going to a, allege that something happened or accuse somebody of something, you can't bring up the evidence later on. And so these writs initially mm -hmm. will just accuse the object of everything under the sun within this mm -hmm. general umbrella. And so if you're mm -hmm. charging somebody with trespassing, you have to say, and Sarah Georgiani did with force of arms, did forcibly and willingly trespass, breaking down my fences. And da -da, mm -hmm. even, if, even if I know you did none of those things, but you still trespassed, it's just in case, because just in case we want to, if we find out any of those things happen during the case, we need to go out there and say it initially in the writ. Otherwise we can't bring it up. That's such an important point. These little blank forms, because that's what they are. You have to scribble everything in because discovery is not wholly part of, right? Yeah. You really do need to document every part of your claim. You have to make a big declaration and you really feel like you're bringing a suit. Like it has a, it has a lot of teeth, a good, a well-written writ. <laughs> yeah. Powerful thing. And it also, if people, I know as a grad student, I was thinking like, oh my gosh, this is such a violent place. Everybody's through force of arms, everything. Because uh, I was looking at a lot of trespass suits. And then, <laughs> then I learned, no, no, this is just the language they use. And, um, you know, these, these details matter. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And those writs are also a great resource for historians trying to understand who's involved, right? Because yeah. the, the writ is going to go to the sheriff of the county. It could travel back to the plaintiff. It could go to the officer who served the defendant. And then it might also have a little scribble on the back that, you know, it's been returned. It's been complied with. So thinking about how that little slip of paper travels and all the people who are involved in it, it's, it's making its own circuit, right? <laughs> so thinking about right. 
how these documents travel and what power they hold. Yeah, you'd want to sit down and you'd want to not screw up the first writ that you ever yeah. with. You'd learn real quick that you shut the door on justice to your client that way. So you want to make sure that you write something that is a good chronicle of what's happened, what you're asking for. It's a clear declaration of your claim. And it is something that can move through all of these channels. Adams, most famously, uh, perhaps defended the the officer commanding the, the British troops at the Boston Massacre. Was there any major case in Maine that he was responsible for that made a big impression on him? There's a bit of a soap opera with a man named Richard King, and you can read all about it in legal papers. Uh, <laughs> a whole nother episode. <laughs> but I would recommend that one for main history fans in particular. Okay. It's really unraveling some of the threads of the Kennebec Company, because that is just such a fascinating story. And I haven't had the, the pleasure to visit the places <laughs> that it impacts and describes. Well, someday I will with very 18th century eyes. But I'd be curious what people make of that now as part of main history. Yeah, uh, I'm not familiar with the King case very much. And so I'm going to have to, I'm going to look back into it as well. Besides the weather and this King soap opera, were there any other major impacts that uh, the John Adams' time riding circuit in Maine had on his career? When John Adams travels, he always has an inquisitive eye for people and culture and institutions and land. So mm. he's very much collecting a sense of what the people of Maine are like. This is new to him. You know, this is his big trip. He doesn't yet know that he's going to have this incredible career as a diplomat on two continents. And this is a, a big journey to make. It's a chance to interact with people outside of his very familiar environs. And he is actually a bit of a people person, right? He's a talker. And so I always like to imagine him kind of interacting with the people that he meets. Years later, when he comes back from Europe, he still recalls chatting with intellectuals and judges and reverends and sermons he heard in Maine, what the religious life was like. So he really has a good account, I think, of remembering me, not just experiencing it very much later on. And then the second point about being inquisitive about land, the Adamses love to buy land. They are cash poor, but land rich, essentially, for some time in the 18th century. And Abigail gobbles up investments in Vermont, but I am certain that he would have also been looking around when he was traveling through to see what might be available. And of course, having clients like the Kennebec Company doesn't hurt. So land yes. being all the rage. There's great memories that he kind of creates of Maine. Weather aside, he, he learns to persevere and appreciate the people. Well, in his own emerging political party, the Federalists, I mean, some of the leading mm -hmm. Federalists were these big mm -hmm. land speculators, as, mm -hmm. along with the Democratic Republicans. But thinking Henry Knox was a huge landholder in, mm -hmm. in the Maine counties. Final question about John Adams in Maine, though. Uh, mm -hmm. This is going to be a, a random aside, but uh, do you know, was he a supporter of Maine statehood in 1820 in his retirement years? Ah, I haven't looked, but I know where to in his correspondence. I will have to look that up. He's very interested in the moves that are made in the 1780s about secession, and he has a lot of strong opinions about those. 
So statehood overall is a thing he loves. The more states admitted to the union, the better. And if they're chock full of federalists, well, doesn't get any better than that. So imagine he most likely welcome it, but given the political ramifications of the move to statehood, I think he might have something to say. So I, I'd have to say further research is required on that one. <laughs> uh, okay. So thinking more broadly about Adams's time as a lawyer and his his papers, what can Adams's experience uh, and the Adams papers tell us about the legal profession in late colonial America? What do you think some of the most valuable insights to be gained from them would be? First off, I think you see a profession that is becoming a profession, right? So it's not quite professionalized. It's fairly rudimentary. The creation of dedicated law schools is not going to happen for some time. But the idea of having a syllabus that everyone adheres to, of having certain protocols that exist across courts, certain traditions, certain practices, down to what he wears in the courtroom. These are all things that are slowly being formalized, but then they are completely overturned by the revolution and the creation of a whole new system. So you really see what it's like to be a lawyer in colonies versus a lawyer in the early Republic. And the sharpest contrast is between the experiences that he has and the ones that his three sons do who are all practicing by the mid to late 1790s, just very different systems of training, thought, experience that really comes to the fore on a larger level this is where he learns how to argue. <laughs> this is basically how he learns to craft any rationale for independence. And what he sees in the courtroom, and this is important, is that the American Revolution is going to need some legal reasoning behind it. <laughs> so uh, the idea that he can legitimate the revolution to a great degree, the fact that the revolution ends in a constitution is a great legal argument, right? Yeah. So he is someone who is very much formed by his experience in the courtroom, and it is the springboard to revolution for him. At the same time that he's practicing law, he's also dabbling in being a man of letters. He is writing Humphrey Cloudjogger. He is writing a dissertation on the canon feudal law. He's trying out his public voice increasingly in different venues. What he learns about that is that the jury of public opinion does not always find in his favor. And he struggles with this for the rest of his career. So a couple of things that he kind of picks up as a lawyer and then he tests or the revolution tests. And that evolves him into, I think, a very different person. He's also, at the time of the revolution, he is easily the busiest lawyer in the Commonwealth. He is someone who makes his name as a lawyer first and foremost before he proceeds to the next stage of his career and brings that experience with him. Before I ask you about your book recommendations, I need you to weigh in with your expert opinion. Which dramatic portrayal of John Adams should be considered canon? Should it be William Daniels, a.k.a. Mr. Feeney, Principal Feeney <laughs> from 1776, or Paul Giamatti, John Adams from the miniseries? Uh, so many great answers among these two. <laughs> I grew up with the 1776 version, so I think that has my heart. Mm. 
I really enjoyed Paul Giamatti's take on John Adams, I have to say, and knowing that it's based on David McCullough's biography of John Adams, which is based on the Adams papers, I'm equally torn. I think that both of them do a very good job of introducing you to what life was like in and around John Adams. So there's a lot of context. I think to understand violence and justice, I'd point to the HBO miniseries because I think that is, is a very good snapshot of how things unfolded. But just for sheer, I love to sing along and maybe do a little dancing to it. I'm going to say 1776. Mm. <laughs> this is fair. I don't know if Paul Giamatti knows how to sing. If, he was, <laughs> if they did Paul Giamatti in like a, re- a re- revival, of 1776. (laughs) Not that I have any, of course, animosity towards William Daniels at all. He also, Principal Feeney as John Adams will also have my heart as well. (laughs) What are you working on or have you recently published that our listeners should know about? So a little while ago, I published Household Gods, which is a 300-year saga of the Adams's religion on several continents from the Puritans to the progressive era, which is kind of a a fun story, I think, for folks to read and enjoy their religious adventures. And currently I am working on an essay on interlibrary loan and how it was created in the 19th century, which stay with me, it's not boring, I promise. It was the, the wild dream of a rascal, a French ventriloquist who thought of bridging the Atlantic with books. So that is a little fun side project that I'm working on. That is poetic. The wild dream of a rascal uh, <laughs> should be the title of something. So <laughs> mayhaps maybe maybe your article on ILL. That's great. Mm-hmm. As a frequent user of it. Uh, yes. That sounds we all great. Are. Thank you, librarians everywhere. That's right. Thanks, <laughs> librarians. And so while we're giving shout outs, what is something somebody else has recently come out with, whether in writing or in, in digital format or what have you, that our audience should be aware of. Can I make an arts recommendation? Because Please I do. To talk about exciting arts projects. So I would highly recommend that folks check out Theater of War Productions, which is a drama group that interprets and presents ancient Greek plays that connect with modern social issues. And you can watch them live on demand. Usually they have some incredible performers. Um, so I would I would highly recommend that the, the first place to start would be with their Antigone in Ferguson. So Theater of War Productions. Wow. OK, we'll put a link up to that on our social media pages, which all Great. true Mainly History fans follow. <laughs> Sarah Giorgini, thanks so much for joining us. Hopefully we will speak with you again soon. Thank you. That's our show. Subscribe and leave a review on your listening platform so that the mania can spread ever further. Speaking of which, welcome to our new listeners in Brazil, in New Zealand, and in the contiguous United States that are not named Idaho. Follow us on Facebook or on Twitter at Mainly History so that you can keep up with book and media recommendations from our guests and so that you don't miss out on future events. Coming soon is a special two-part Halloween episode on George Burroughs, a Maine minister executed for witchcraft during the 1692 trials in Salem, Massachusetts. That's next time on Mainly History.